Hello and welcome to another episode of the Black Business Psychology Network's podcast. I am your host, Dr. Grace Mansarisi, and today's episode, we get to talk to Rebecca Francis, who is a speech and language therapist who currently works in a charity setting, working with young people and children and their parents. Rebecca started studying psychology as an undergrad, um, and then she had various roles, one of them namely being an assistant speech and language therapist role, for her to understand uh, a bit more about what speech and language therapists do. After that, she embarked on a two-year master's programme at UCL, which at that time had a bursary, so funding attached. Unfortunately, that's not the case anymore. So that course is an intensive two-year programme, which essentially squeezes a four-year undergraduate in speech and language therapy into two years. So it's a full-time course. That's what Rebecca did. And you hear a bit more about what she does now in her role as a speech and language therapist in this episode so stay tuned and so if you're interested in any of the profession there will be linked below um, in the description where you can find out more information hi everyone welcome to another episode of the black business psychology networks podcast today we have a guest and this i think this podcast episode i'm quite looking forward to learning about her profession i'm not going to expose what it is right now but we have Rebecca Francis with us so thank you and welcome to, welcome to the podcast thanks for joining us. Hi Grace thank you for having me um, yeah I'm really interested in um, yeah sharing a bit more about what I do and so that people can yeah learn a bit more about the profession as a whole. Brilliant so Rebecca your current job title and what you do in your job so what is it that you do and what do you do in that job? Okay, so I'm a speech and language therapist um, and currently I work in a children for a children's charity um, that provides quite a few different services but one of them is um, providing rehabilitation um, for children who've had an acquired brain injury um, and kind of provides services um, to children with complex needs and, and young adults as well who yes. live residentially and also access educational sites. So that is the main service that I work for. Mm-hmm. Um, so that involves children who've had like severe brain injuries, who have yeah. complex medical needs, um, mm-hmm. and also who have like um, profound and multiple learning disabilities. Yeah. Um, within that, I work to kind of support their communication within the residential setting and then also in um, the educational setting. So working with teachers and yeah. class staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also supporting swallowing difficulties, which is right. um, something that a lot of them experience as well. Um, so yeah, that involves kind of assessments and then managing their swallowing difficulties and then kind of sharing recommendations and supporting staff who are working with them. That is like a very brief overview of everything. <laughs> it sounds so interesting. I would never have thought that, obviously speech and language makes sense, but you're dealing with not just the psychological side of forming developing speech and all the things that come along with that but the physical ability to be able to speak and if people have problems with their throat palates tongues Mm -hmm. they can't talk like it's harder for them to talk so I never even thought about the swallowing difficulties being part of it so it sounds very like it is obviously a medical profession would it be classed as medical or would it be classed Um, as so I guess it, I don't think it's, it's entirely classed as medical, but it depends on the setting that you work. So mm. um, 
because I work with children that have complex medical needs and depend on that their diagnosis um, then I'll have insight into swallowing difficulties and working right. with them in that area yeah. um, but you can work um, in schools and you might not encounter swallowing difficulties um, depending on who you see client group um, but if you work in hospitals then yeah you will be seen as more a medical professional or working with the medical professionals a little bit more um closely brilliant and that makes sense and it like you said it is dependent on the context but it does sound like you work quite multidisciplinary for the multi cross with lots of different professionals including <laughs> yeah. psychologists so that that must be interesting yeah it is really interesting and actually we have psychologists on site so it's actually I always really enjoy working with psychologists as well as other professionals as well um it's usually centered around kind of um positive behavior um supports and kind of working with all the staff who work with that young person to kind of support um the behavior and try and figure out what the causes are and stuff but that's really uh, quite interesting Brilliant. So next question is, how did you get here? How did you get to be a speech and language therapist? I know that sounds like a very philosophical question, but let's break it down to like from school and then how did you get get to this point? Yeah, so I actually did not know about speech and language therapy initially. So um, when I first generally from like college I developed an interest in psychology um a level so did psychology and sociology um and a kind of English language um and then from then I thought oh actually I'm really interested in psychology I wanted to learn a bit more about it um so then I studied it at undergrad um and I did a four-year course so it was like a short or thin language course I think they yeah. referred to it as yeah um, so I could do two short placements while I was there mm-hmm. um and so I think some of the modules like developmental psychology and um, child psychology were some of the ones that were really interesting to me because I wanted to work with kids but I just didn't really know where to kind of go with it so um, my placements were also at special needs schools so one was a primary school one was a secondary special needs school um, that I really enjoyed um, but I guess in those settings you couldn't really work closely alongside like an educational psychologist for example because they just weren't based in the school Um, so yeah from there um, I took a job after I, qualified, after I finished my undergraduate degree um, as an applied behaviour analysis tutor working oh. with kids with autism yeah um, so yeah that was very different as well to kind of um, what I was doing in um, while I was doing my degree mm. um, but yeah it was really interesting to kind of work more closely with kids with autism um, especially because there's a, such a spectrum so working yeah. with a lot of different um, students and they all presented very differently and uniquely um, and I really enjoyed kind of working there it was kind of I learned a lot of really good skills about around interaction mainly as well as mm. well as communication because a lot of those children were nonverbal. Um, but I just knew that that wasn't like my career path mm-hmm. that wasn't mm-hmm. for me um, and so then after while doing that job I kind of worked with some speech language therapists who came into the school Right. And I kind of learned a little bit about speech and language therapy and I was like oh this is quite interesting um let me find out a little bit more um so then the speech therapist that came into the school kind of told me about some of the settings that you can work in and then I found an assistant job um right because I was like let me just get some experience yeah. in this um, new kind of role that I've never really heard of mm. um so then I went to do an assistant role um just to find out a little bit more and also find out what you needed to 
to get into like a, the course and experience is really key yeah um so I worked with um in a for NHS trust in Elin and mm-hmm. I worked with under fives um so the early year service um supporting children who'd had like speech difficulties or social communication difficulties mm-hmm. language delays and disorders and supporting yeah. the therapists who worked with those kids and families um and then from there I kind of found out that you had to do like a because I had psychology as an undergraduate um, course, um, I had to do the master's, which was two years, very intensive, but also very competitive. So I was like, oh, this um, experience is quite useful because it's really, really hard to get into the actual course. Mm. Um, So yeah, I applied for university um, and then managed to kind of get on a course to study speech and language therapy. Um, And then, yeah here I am today um finally qualified and everything um but yeah it was a long journey to get here essentially I can relate like that sounds I I like how well first of all let's go back because your undergraduate allowed you because it was a four-year thin sandwich where did you do that because there's not that many places that do thin or thick sandwiches anymore (laughs) yeah it was pretty narrow university yeah so I think they were one of the very few universities that offered a placement year or half a placement year or whatever it was yeah yeah no I I know a lot of people that did theirs at Brunel I think Bath is another one Cardiff Mm. used to but I can't remember if they still do and there's a few more but there's not as many but that year well half year that you did the placements what did you take from that experience or those experiences um, I think it just opened my um, my eyes to kind of the different um, disabilities that children might have. Um, could just um, presentations of the different children, the young people that were in the schools, um, kind of insight into kind of how they access education and um, the range of difficulties or abilities that they had as well. Yeah. Um, I think the classes that I worked in happened to be like kids with very complex or just varying degrees of like needs from physical to um communication um to learning difficulties Mm. so it was quite a good insight into kind of how they access education how they're supported um how staff work with them um also challenging behavior which was quite Mm. interesting and kind of thinking about what kind of um what behaviors kind of um lead on to challenging behaviors which was really really interesting to see Mm. Um, and then I didn't really have much involvement with parents and families, but the ones that I did see kind of speaking to them about their experience or, um, yeah, their experience or um, how, what they thought about different professionals and their input and the services that they received. So, yeah, it was really interesting. It, it does sound like that. And then I like how you then got a role that was kind of similar, but in a different setting. And then you use that to kind of pivot yourself like, oh, I don't know about this career. I'm working with a group of professionals. Let me find out what it's all about. So how did you go about interacting and working with the speech and language therapist that, that you found in that workplace? And was it, because some people might feel, find it a bit daunting, like talking to mm-hmm. strangers, uh, probably yeah. at that point, they weren't strangers, they were friends, but about like, what is it that you do? Like, so yeah, how did you find that experience? Um, I felt like it was okay like the speech language therapist who came into the school was really really nice and she was happy to kind of answer my questions um, but because um, we worked one-to-one with different children so when I brought the child that I was working with to the sessions it kind of gave them a provided avenue to kind of ask some 
questions not a lot because I mean I had to do my job but it just <laughs> kind of I could kind of just um pick her brains a little bit on just ask questions out of curiosity yeah um especially when she was recommending different techniques and stuff I was like oh actually this sounds really interesting how did you get into it so it kind of just happened from there and she was really receptive to answering questions and kind of told me to kind of point I think she pointed me in the direction of a couple of things I could look at just to find out a little bit more Brilliant. so that was really yeah it was really good and I guess an opportunity for her to raise like awareness of the role as yeah. well sounds great and like then you took it upon yourself to like think oh let me get an assistant role and I didn't know that speech and language therapy was that competitive really but it makes sense yeah. um was the masters that you did funded at all yeah like so I luckily I luckily was in the last year of the bursary funded courses they don't do um, that anymore no <sighs> they don't um so I was really really grateful to actually get in there before the bursary was taken away um but yeah so it's essentially only a couple of universities in London offer the course as a postgraduate I think also undergraduate I don't think every university offers it I think that's also why you look in a generic prospectus for undergraduate courses you don't necessarily yes, see yeah. it in a lot at all so I actually didn't know about it yes. and I'm sure a lot of people actually don't know about it either no I think I came across I think there was somebody in my cohort undergrad that went on to do it as postgrad but this was like back mm. in the day and then I worked I worked part-time as a, in a tutoring center about 12 years ago and somebody that I think she was doing an undergrad in speech and language therapy but I think I've heard I'd heard of speech and language therapy but I didn't think about it as mm-hmm. like a profession so yeah it's probably something that people don't consider it sounds to me and again this is like another profession that I've heard of audiology I didn't I didn't even know what it was until I met somebody when I was doing a temp job once who was doing yeah. it as a degree and I was like what a, a degree in listening like what what is this I had no <laughs> idea that it was a, a whole degree like it was a profession yeah. but it makes sense um so yeah the assistant role did you find it hard to find that speech and language therapy assistant role um yeah how does it work um so generally I just kind of really got acquainted with NHS jobs in the website <laughs> because that's how I uh, I think I was, that's how I was told that you can find those type of jobs yeah. so I just literally was googling around um and there were they were quite a lot of different assistant jobs but I think it was just finding ones that were in the area that I found was interesting yeah. um so I think I was drawn to early years because I'd worked with like younger children I thought it was yeah I was quite interested in kind of doing that mm. um but I think initially I was pretty much open to whatever was open um but yeah I used NHS jobs and it did take a couple of months to just find one and then once I went through the interview process um, then I got the one that I worked in um, until I went to university so like again this is going to sound like a stupid question but in terms of day-to-day in on the assistant Mm -hmm. role yeah what were you doing how were you interacting what were the assessments like that you were administering yeah what was it like so I think the only thing that I didn't really do as an assistant was, well, not the only thing, actually, one of the things I didn't do was assessment. So it's right. more centered on supporting and doing therapy. Um, so like day to day, I kind of supported with kind of some administrative tasks like booking um, children in for group sessions or individual sessions and supporting specific therapists doing like groups more mostly that they might have needed an extra pair of hands. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of supported those therapists doing um, whatever the interventions were um, in clinics and also in um, in schools, like for reception and nursery classes, that kind of thing. Um, and then some other things that I did um, was kind of collecting and um, creating resources um, so that therapists could use them or I could use them in the sessions that I supported. Um, and then I think I worked with quite a few different therapists. So then my day was actually pretty busy um, or my week was quite busy um, doing diff- supporting different groups. Um, so I might have done a group with like children who had social communication difficulties with a therapist. Um, and then might have worked with a therapist doing language groups or doing some kind of small groups for children with speech difficulties. Um, and then I think as I kind of got found my feet and kind of became, I think after my first year, they kind of gave me a little bit more kind of responsibility and I could do sessions by myself um, once the therapy program was essentially set out by the therapist. Um, and then because they knew I wanted to do psychology, um, not psychology, speech and language therapy, they kind of allowed me to kind of get involved with a lot, a little bit more and just observe quite a lot um, because they saw that I was interested. That sounds yeah. really good, like a proper like testing ground to see mm-hmm. they tried you with little things and then it, it built up your experience levels and your exposure. So some of the like, for example, like group therapy when you're doing the group therapy the speech language what does that consist of like what what would you be doing as now I'm talking as an actual speech and language therapist not a trainee but uh, not okay. not sorry not a trainee not an assistant yeah what what do, what's the role like so what how are you assisting the people okay well to be honest I can talk about my current role um because it's quite different to what I did as an assistant for example um but essentially my role would be to essentially um, look at my caseload of, of children and young adults and kind of figure out um, what intervention they would benefit from based on what their needs are. Um, so if it was a group setting, it's, it would mostly be kind of pairing um, children that are have similar difficulties potentially or areas that you kind of want to support um, and then kind of putting the resources together to kind of um, to support kind of that group um, if it's kind of communication, it might just be something general, picking some activities that could target, I don't know, choice making or um, kind of some basic level vocabulary and then essentially running the group. So, um, yes, with the support of like class staff or whoever's around. Um, so that's kind of what I would do now. Um, whilst in the assistant role, I kind of still I had times where I actually had to run sessions and groups with like four or five kids and then their parents as well, um, which was a task. Um, but yeah, it was really good experience of like, um, yeah, um, trying to engage multiple children basically at the same time. Yeah, especially like smaller kids if your age group was like five preschool, they can't, they're not gonna sit still, they're gonna, no. yeah. Yeah, and they didn't, they did <laughs> still. And it was a really good experience to kind of see how other therapists dealt with it and then I use that to kind of try and figure out how to engage them myself, especially um, in the assistant role and also on my placements. I was like, okay, these got, I don't know, four or five kids who are three to five and they have social communication difficulties. Mm. And part of that, they do not sit in one place at all. And then I have like a box of resources and I'm like, okay, how can I engage them in this box and make it really interesting um, to like develop attention skills or um, 
like turn taken but um yeah eventually after a couple of weeks you you could see the differences and mm. they got used to the fact that they had to come in and sit down um I mean they still got up and ran around but at, at least for maybe if it was a minute longer than the time before it was a win um and progress in the right direction so yeah that sounds really rewarding and I think once you start doing it if you, if you enjoy it because some people might start doing it I think this is not for me but it becomes <laughs> like rewarding in and of itself so you want to do more you want to learn about more interventions to tailor them to the different types of children that you will come into contact with and with the parents as well like is it more about teaching them about the techniques um, and advising how does that work how do you work with the, children, the parents um so in my current setting because a lot of the children are residential so they're they don't live with their parents essentially um so you kind of sh- I guess I share kind of what I've recommended and can give kind of strategies that they can use when they're interacting with their children when they come to visit um I guess I mainly work with um with the staff the care staff and also with school staff and kind of model strategies and things that they can use and how they can incorporate that into like the school day or when they're at their in their residential setting um like during like activities of like daily living that kind of thing yeah um but um I when I was an assistant kind of working with the under fives they came into a clinic so it was just kind of modern um, strategies that they could use at home and um the therapist would give them um some activity ideas of things they can do at home as well um, so yeah it's a mixture of everything yeah so you're just like you're recommending to someone it might be the primary care whoever the primary caregiver is so if they're in a residential setting it'll be those people and then the parents when they do visit or caregivers and then when it's with under fives who are live at home then it will be their whoever either their parents or their their primary caregivers as well yeah yeah and that was generally my experience but you can also work with um over fives you can work yeah. with um, like primary secondary school settings um people referral units mm. college um and then obviously with adults so there's quite a lot of scope yeah really interesting so when you enrolled on the masters what was that like obviously you said it was competitive that you managed to get on um in 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 a university in London which is probably quite hard because I'm I don't know how I haven't researched, but it's probably not as many places that you can study the postgraduate, like you said. So within that two year period, what was it like? Um, I'm assuming you had some kind of placement structure as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And luckily you were you had a bursary, so you had a little bit of money to like live on. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, but it was definitely better than nothing. Um, Yeah, so the two years was very like it was very competitive to get into um mainly because they were a very small cohort so when in my actual cohort I think there were 60 of us to start with um to start with (laughs) I love that (laughs) then people started dropping off right (laughs) a couple people yes definitely left um I guess it's because also in that process you kind of figure out if what whether you like it or not or maybe you find another area you want to go into instead but um yeah we started with 60 but in some universities they had maybe like 20 25 um so I went to UCL and they had the cohort of 60 but you had to do um an interview day so you had to go and do an interview you had to um, watch a video of a service user um with communication difficulties and kind of map out um what you observe about the interaction between them and someone else and there was like a few other things like a group um activity that you had to do as well so it was 
once you got through the door and you, you know your personal statement was great you had to do all of that before you, and then the interview before you got accepted um so yeah once I did that um it was um so the first year was working with children and so that was covered anything to do with assessments and intervention for a range of different difficulties um and then the second year was adults um that was all to do with kind of adults communication the different um conditions they might have and then um so our placements were then divided into the learning so the, the pediatric placements were all in the first year with the learning and then the second year was adults and that was then, then when you had the adult placements so generally because the fact that it's two years I think it they said it was a, essentially the four-year course which is the undergrad squashed into two That's years what I was going to ask is it is it like one yeah. of those masters where you're squishing an undergraduate into yeah wow that's a lot yeah absolutely so it was extremely intensive and they did not hide that from the interview or even just open days they said it's going to be really intensive it's going to be tough um you know if you have a job you might have to rethink that because you're not going to have time um so our days were literally not, probably nine to five most days if you're not on placement um like four to five days a week so we had yeah it was very full-on <laughs> very full-on and how did you juggle the assignments because obviously you've got to do the assignments as well you're not just on placement all the time yeah so we had specific time slots when we had placements so I guess they tried to kind of level it out so you had um, time to do everything but essentially you just had to be really organized I think I had to be really organized and once I kind of learned all the theory to apply to like my um, assignments and stuff then I'll try and get that done, that done or started at least um, and just keep on being aware of all the deadlines that were coming up um, but yeah it was it was a juggling um, scenario just to get everything done um, yeah were you able to how did you choose your placements were they chosen for you or did you have to find them yourself um, so they had links with lots of different like NHS trusts um, that they had um, historically given um, provided placements to the students at UCL or even the all the London universities um, so I think for some of them we could kind of put a rough choice of an area we want to work in or a particular setting and then then you find out which one you're allocated to essentially um so yeah I think I might have chosen schools potentially or something like that for the first year but I was happy to kind of get anything and everything because I was like you know it's all good really good experience Mm. um so yeah for the first year I I think I got working in um a mainstream primary school service and then the second placement I had was a people referral unit um with a few links to the criminal justice or the youth justice service yeah um so yeah they were quite varied or you could do for the adults you could work in a hospital or um you could work in the community so yeah it was very varied they Mm. did have quite good links when it came to placements brilliant and how then so after the masters you finish hooray you're you're free um how did it how was easy was it to find your first role um I actually found my first role pretty quickly after kind of I think I finished I found it before I finished yeah um and then just it was the waiting process to get all the checks completed yeah um so there was a we had visiting lecturers so they the my basically the therapist from my current role 
came in to do a lecture and then told us that they have jobs coming up in the summer so when those jobs came out um one of the lecturers kind of circulated them and then I applied for that and that's how I got it so I think by we handed in our dissertation in September but before then I had already found my job interviewed and was just waiting to start efficient Um, yeah I was (laughs) like oh this is great um (laughs) I think for everyone else, because I didn't go the NHS route, but for those who did, mm. I think it was a little bit competitive because essentially your whole your whole cohort is also looking for jobs. Um, the and NHS. then other universities as well who mm. finish at the same time. Mm. Um, but all the people that I know found their jobs um, in London fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was. I think it wasn't too bad. But it can get quite competitive, depending if you're looking for a specific role, that can mm. also be quite hard. Would you say there's a shortage of speech and language therapists in the UK? Do you have any idea of that? That's probably a question I should ask first. Um, I think that it's definitely a role that I think is always re- they're always recruiting speech mm. language therapists. I think it depends on where in your service, because mm. some services really retain their therapists. They right. don't use them as much. Um but then, so like, there will always be a need for children speech language therapists. I feel like I see that role come out all the time. Um, maybe because people move around more, I'm not mm. sure. But um, for adults, for example, those ones are a bit um, less um, popular. Not popular, they less kind common. of come less, yeah. less common. So I don't know if, I'm not sure the reasons why, but um, yeah, I definitely think there's an increasing need for them because... Um, the waiting lists are always long and there's always people that need the service but I think yeah. it really depends where you're working. Okay that's a really good point thank you for that and what would you say you enjoy most about your job as a speech and language therapist? Um, I definitely really enjoy working with um, clients so whether that's mm. the children or adults I really enjoy working with them and also their family members so mm. the children and um, where I'm at now I like working with um the families, the parents or carers. Um, and it's just really rewarding to kind of support um, communication, which is one of those things where you don't really realise how how valuable it is until you don't have that yeah. Um, yeah. ability. And then you just kind of see how that minor things, like choosing what you want to watch or eat and just not being able to contribute or participate in those decisions. Um, so to be able to kind of help even to facilitate the smallest thing when it comes to communication or even swallowing I think is really rewarding as well um, and even for children or adults that make very little progress at a time it's just even seeing those small steps is extremely rewarding to mm. be a part of. Absolutely no it does sound because you're working so closely with the clients um, and their families you tend to get to see the impact of what you're doing mm-hmm. um, firsthand or even secondhand. So like some of the placements you would have had, like you said in the PR, P- pupil referral unit, PRU, that sounds really interesting because mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many like areas of neglect in a, in a child that's in a PRU in the first place. So like yeah. you're giving it to people who may not have been able to access it in a mainstream setting well they would have been able to access it if they were given what they would have should have had anyway do you see what I mean so now it's in a critical extreme setting but you're still there to help so even though the system might not be the best at least you're there to give those people the help even though it might sometimes 
it's later than it should have been. I mean, I'm sure you saw that a lot. Yeah, yeah. And I did see that in the people referral unit placement, definitely, um, where doing assessments for 15 year olds and wondering how comes their difficulties weren't highlighted like years ago because mm. um, they didn't present as new difficulties. They seem like they would have been a barrier, like, for example, comprehension difficulties yeah. um, that comes up in English and pretty much all um, subjects, especially from secondary school onwards so then it's kind of like you're working with a 16 year old who's not working at the level um that sh- that they should be um and then you got kind of only pick that up so um like far down their um educational um journey which is a real shame because then they miss out on so much because they're not able to follow their lessons and kind of then you see behavior and then you kind of wonder oh I wonder why they're acting like that And then it's like, well, there are definitely reasons for that. And yeah, communication, definitely one of them. And if it got picked up when it was supposed to, they wouldn't have been in the PRU a lot of the time because you're saying like the communication difficulties might lead to some people acting difficult in inverted commas. And then they they get lumbered in a PRU because they've got behavioural issues, but they don't have behavioural issues. They have communication issues and they weren't heard. So they do you know what I mean it's like a convey about it's like a yeah domino effect yeah absolutely and that is yeah it's definitely something I saw um in that placement particularly and it really opened my eyes as well because I'd never really seen the inside of a pupil referral unit Mm. um never really been um never really knew about the speech therapy role within that setting as well Mm. um but yeah definitely like the work that I did when I was on placement um it was really interesting but unfortunately quite sad to see so many children that kind of just got missed would you change anything doing because you've had you know it's taken a while to get here you've done well got a job (laughs) you stayed employed during covid well done but (laughs) during the journey is there anything that you would do differently or you would advise other people to do that you didn't do um I I always I feel like if you asked me maybe a year a year ago, I probably would have said, oh, I really want to have gone kind of found speech language therapy as a career earlier on. Um, but actually reflecting on it, I actually really appreciate kind of the route, the long winded route I took to get to speech therapy because I felt like all those experiences um, gave me some invaluable experiences and, and learning opportunities that I wouldn't have had if I found it out about the career earlier on. Um, so like, yeah, working with children of varying um abilities and kind of in different settings that was all really really useful as well as having a foundation of psychology like quite a lot of my cohort also did psychology as an undergrad so actually it was really helpful to have that that basic knowledge because then you kind of we still had some form of psychology modules um while studying um speech language therapy so it was just nice to see that link um still um and the relevance of it um but just obviously going into a bit of a different direction yeah um, so yeah, I think the main thing is I'm glad that I was able to get the experiences um, before I went into the profession. So I knew exactly what I was expecting yeah. um, and what the role looked like day to day. And that is something I would definitely encourage other people who are interested um, because I think it's really important to kind of um, know what to expect and um, to have all of that set out before you kind of invest two years into um, maybe even less than two years to get onto a course that's really competitive and realise it's not for you or it's not what you expected kind of thing. Absolutely. No, that's so correct. And that goes for every, everything, but something as intensive and specific as speech and language therapy, yes. it's kind of like you can't really do it if you're not really sure. And it sounds like the 
the application process to get onto the masters sounds like the apprentice like <laughs> what's going on because it sounds like you can't it would be difficult for you to go through that process and know what to expect if you didn't have the background that you did for example the assistant role that you did um or it's something similar to that you can't just go in green like oh I felt like uh, why don't I just try speech and language and then we apply to a master's it doesn't sound like you could just do that no I mean unless you can really talk away for an interview but I wouldn't have been able to do that I would have struggled so yeah definitely those experiences were helpful because then I could use those examples from that to kind of demonstrate the skills and kind of what they were looking for essentially yeah um, yeah even with the like even if you could wing it through the interview but it sounds like the practical tasks like observing a communication you can't just look at that as an as a labored and be like yeah yeah this is what I'm noticing so it sounds like you do need some kind of mm. an interest you would have done your research you would have spoken to people maybe shadowed got an assistant role worked with speech language therapists something before yeah, you yeah. can get onto the that master's course um you did also just touch upon um, that you, a lot of your cohort had already studied psychology undergrad. And I just wanted to ask how, how do you, what kind of knowledge did you gain from psychology that you still use in your actual role? Because I <laughs> did a module in second year called psycholinguistics and Mm -hmm. let's just say it was a giant killer not that I was a giant I was not the top of the class by any stretch of the imagination <laughs> but I found that module so hard I was like what is this <laughs> what am I learning it was so difficult like the the language acquisition models yeah it was it was a lot for me so yeah how yeah. did you get exposed to any of those modules when you were in undergrad and then like in your day-to-day -day work um how would you say you use psychology? I'll say definitely like thinking about child deve development, um, that is the key one. Um, we kind of learn a bit about, well, we learn a lot about language acquisition um, and it kind of links in um, as well with um, generally the umbrella of development, the acquisition of language, development of play, um, the development of, um, I think we still kind of loosely, I guess you can look at attachment styles. Um, you might not use a the theory, but generally having that as a basic level of understanding is helpful because um, when you're working with, I guess, young children, for example, you're looking at developmental stages, you're looking at how they play, how they interact, um, the environment they're exposed to and kind of how you can support that environment so that they can then develop language. Um, so I think those are the areas that I think I would, I use the most. Mm. Um, now um but then it's kind of more tailored to language and communication of course um it sounds like you do a bit of bulby i'm trying to remember <laughs> my attachment bulby um and ericsson with the developmental stick like all those those dons those old <laughs> psychology guys uh from undergrad and from a level psychology yeah i haven't touched them since but yeah attachment comes up all the time like it, there's so much stuff to do with attachment and it's very applicable to a lot of things so yeah that theory has followed me since I was 17 and it will never leave me it's like yeah. it so <laughs> that's great it sounds like it, it makes sense especially the developmental psychology modules and the child development 
you're actively seeing that on a day-to-day basis to a certain extent and you'll be able to apply or pick and pick and mix the theories to suit the setting yeah and again it's kind of like um I mean I still don't remember all the theory but it's just knowing some of the basic levels of kind of what you would expect that is helpful to then determine if you feel like someone's not meeting the developmental stages they should be kind of thing yeah and that's just for the early like the younger children but Mm. um yeah for older children I'm not sure it probably changes a little bit but um because a lot of my experience was younger children I can see that um that Mm. link a bit easier Mm. makes sense makes sense so we're nearly at the end (laughs) you're like (laughs) how are we done yet um so the next question is around like around race and gender as a trainee um even after well during your undergrad after the undergrad when you went into the world of work to now you're in the world of work as a qualified speech and language mm-hmm. have you experienced any difficulties or barriers or do you see them in other people that you work with any other professionals and how do you overcome them if at all yeah so um so my my cohort of students um out of 60 there were probably about four five at the most that were from um like different um, backgrounds other than white um female or male generally um so I think I was I think there were three black um girls on my course to start with one left and then it was two of us left I think um, but essentially it wasn't very diverse in our cohort um, and that kind of gave me a bit of an insight into what the profession was like um, when I was an assistant I there was quite a number of um, therapists from ethnic minority groups um, but I knew from there that there was still a majority um, mm. and a large majority at that so then my cohort didn't really surprise me I kind of expected it yeah um, and then also placements, kind of seeing who your practice educators were and what backgrounds they belong to. I was like, okay, I'm not seeing a lot of like black um, therapists or even Asian therapists um, or other ethnic minority groups. It was generally um, white females generally. Mm. Um, and then there was only one placement actually where I saw um, a black female who was a speech language therapist um, and that was in the pupil referral unit service and youth justice yeah. um, and actually it was really really amazing to kind of see her um, in the field yeah. also uh, for many reasons one because she um, was the lead of that service um, so she kind of had she developed kind of that helped to develop that team and structure it um, but also she made some really good contributions like through writing chapters um, contributing chapters to books and articles and that kind of thing and she was like a a breadth of knowledge um yeah. so yeah it was really encouraging for me to kind of see somebody who looks like me doing amazing things um for the, the profession because that was an anomaly for me and my experience yeah. um and then I took a job in um outside of London so then I went into a a team that basically had no um therapists from any other ethnic minority groups it was just me as the speech and language therapist um that was then was black so um yeah again not too surprising mm. um also I went out of, a little bit out of London so I was like well actually maybe this is what I should have expected even more so um 
I think for me, I didn't experience any kind of difficulties per se, but there's definitely um, kind of a perception of what a speech language therapist looks like, essentially, and they're not fitting that description. Um, so I think I've always been aware of that, but I haven't necessarily experienced something that has kind of, um, yeah, been negative necessarily. But I just know that I'm not what people are expecting, if you get what I mean. Yeah, in that sense, have you ever been mis, uh, misrecognised? Like you might walk into, I don't know, a school setting or wherever. Do people think that you're not a like we'd be oh like are you here for x y and z you're like no I'm the speech language therapist has that ever happened it hasn't um but I think I'm based on one in one setting I think right. if I moved around I present it probably would happen I, yeah. I would I'm, I'm sure it would um it hasn't happened um but I do feel like people still kind of they want to be absolutely sure about what your role is um I think in my current setting it was just a generic kind of what do you do but not necessarily because I was a speech language therapist or they didn't know who I was but it was mostly because there's so many professionals around right right um, that they can't really keep track um but yeah I definitely feel like that would happen in other places um definitely yeah and because you work in the current setting like you said interdisciplinary (laughs) (laughs) it's more natural that people will be asking what your role is when you go into different areas because yeah that makes sense that's a really interesting insight about like the cohort from the masters and I'm sure that was different from the cohort from your undergrads very different because Brunel is a lot more diverse as a university um anyway so and also on the undergraduate psychology course even though I didn't do it I nearly applied I actually applied there it was my it was my insurance place but I didn't go (laughs) but yeah I remember from the open days and stuff and I know a lot of people that that went through now and did psychology as well so yeah I know that it's a little bit more diverse yeah it was it was very diverse so I guess it was a very different kind of um university experience to the first one um, Mm. that I had yeah okay so now you're qualified you've got your job like what are your future plans I mean you don't have to go into detail (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's not a career session but like in general where do you see yourself and like in the in the next I don't want to give you a time limit but it's just in the future and what, what do you want to do with with your role yeah so um so I'm currently in my first job since um qualifying um and so I'm still in like the first um almost two years essentially this year will be the second year um so for me I just want to gain a lot of experience in different um settings I think it's really um, kind of important before I kind of make roots in one area to just um, have experience in some other areas um, I definitely feel like for now I want to stick with working with children um, I have some interest in kind of rehabilitation and mm. supporting communication and swallowing in that area and um, particularly after like an acquired brain injury for young children um, so that potentially is on the cards um, for the future um essentially the long-term aim would be to essentially develop my own practice right Um, but yeah before that I'll just be gaining experience that when I do that I kind of have a good um kind of basis I was going to ask about working privately (laughs) I was like can you and you can't obviously it makes sense but yeah how does that work so would you work privately and then contract to other services and have other like staff basically working with you to deliver those services 
Yeah, so it's, it's actually quite um, common for speech language therapists to work independently. A lot of therapists have kind of set up their own practices and then kind of um, joint forces with um, other professionals, not even just therapists, a speech therapist, okay. but kind of psychologists yeah. or um, any other professionals that are related mm-hmm. to some degree. Um, and I've kind of seen a lot of like different routes to it, but I think for the ones I've seen, it's kind of like a gradual easing out of the NHS I've seen. Um, so kind of reducing days. Yeah, um, two, three and days. Then, yeah, and then once you kind of establish your caseload and you kind of know you're, you've got a certain client group, then you can kind of ease out. Um, there's like an association for independent speech and language therapists. Right. Um, so you can kind of join that and then they you can advertise your services so that parents can use that website to search for therapists who specialize in different areas so there's quite a few areas and then now LinkedIn um you can put you can always find somebody who's looking for someone (laughs) to work in their role so yeah I think there's quite a lot of scope um brilliant that sounds good like that's that's good to know and like again healthcare has taken it healthcare social care has taken a massive hit during COVID mm-hmm. in terms of the demand for services has been through the roof and you've had to be going in every day still like working from home is not an option for you so I think keep doing what you're doing because it sounds like you do a really good job and thank you so much for sharing your insight in, into the role that like, I've learned so much from like what did what do you do again <laughs> help people talk how do you do that I think it's such a valuable service that is needed by you know such a lot of people so offering that service and working with so many different um professionals sounds really interesting and it doesn't sound like you ever get bored with the role (laughs) no there's lots to do there's so much to do there's no time to be bored um (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i i'm grateful for the platform just to kind of raise awareness to the role um i think um knowing how I kind of found it which was kind of off the cuff I feel like um there's so many people that don't really know unless they've experienced it or they know someone who has experienced services um they still don't know and there's a yeah so it's really important to kind of just spread the word and raise awareness brilliant and is there like a so you said that there was an independent body for speech language therapists what's the non-independent body for speech <laughs> um it's called the royal college of speech and language oh, therapists makes sense yeah so i didn't know there was a royal college for that oh so many royal colleges yeah. i didn't know about coming out of woodwork <laughs> that's good to know i'll link that in the description so if anyone wants um to get some information about the profession or how you, the routes to it the link will be in the description area so thank you very much becca for your time i'm going to